From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present Of Rats and Men, written and performed by Joanne Lau. Joanne is a writer and former comedian. She is an alumni of the BBC Writers' Room Comedy Room and has been a finalist for the BAFTA Rowcliffe New Writing Forum. She's currently developing projects across TV, theatre, radio and film, and her work has appeared on Netflix, Apple TV, HBO Max, Comedy Central and BBC Radio 4. Prior to writing full-time, Joanne spent 15 years in academic neuroscience research, working on pain disorders, brain tumours and other ways our nervous systems can go haywire. This story is partially inspired by that research and contains content and language that if you're squeamish might be difficult to listen to. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Joanne about the origins of and intentions behind her story. But for now, here she is reading Of Rats and Men. Was it a good death? Maggie never used to understand that question. What do you mean, was it a good death? It was death. Of course it wasn't good. Maggie has never told her family what she does for a living. I mean, they know she's a laboratory technician in the same way she knows her cousin Allison married a management consultant. Doesn't mean she actually knows what he does day to day. When Maggie's Uncle Jeffrey was diagnosed with bowel cancer, her Auntie Colleen called her with a list of questions. Was it the bacon? She always said he ate too much bacon. Could she look over his list of treatments? The doctor said three to five years if he's lucky. Is that right? Maggie explained to her aunt that she wasn't a doctor. She was just a research technician, and whilst she could explain genetic markers and molecular pathways, she knew nothing about the clinical side of things. Their oncologist would know infinitely more. She could tell by the long pause that her aunt didn't believe her. After she hung up, Maggie felt disappointed and ashamed of her job. Well, more than she normally did anyway. At parties, Maggie usually just told people she worked in science and hoped the conversation moved on. But there was always that one guy, and it usually was a guy, who asked, what kind of science? Research? What kind of research? Cancer? But what does that mean, practically? What do you actually do for cancer research? Maggie would patiently take a sip of wine and say her work involved culturing and freezing surgically removed tumor tissues from patients for future treatment or research, like genetic screening or personalized vaccines. And what kind of marketing was it that he did again? It sounded fascinating. Most people loved hearing about patients and surgeons and the goo and gore of being handed warm vats of tissues and tumors straight from the operating theater. That was the sexy part of her job. And it was the truth. Just not all of it. In practice, that probably took up 20% of her week. More often, she took those tumor cells and injected them into mice to study them in vivo. More often than that, she induced fresh tumors into mice she'd carefully bred over months to carry various combinations of the genetic mutations present in those patient tumors. Not so sexy. Sacrificing animals for cancer research hadn't come naturally to Maggie. She supposed if it had, she'd probably be a serial killer. 
So really, this was a good thing. Maggie adores animals. Animals are pure. No agendas, no insecurities, no self-importance. Not like management consultants. During her training, Maggie was taught that the most humane way to kill a mouse is to break its neck. She didn't believe it. It sounded so... violent. Accordingly, the first time she had to do it, she opted to use CO2 gas. As the head technician looked on, she gently lowered the mouse into a translucent red chamber, turned on the oxygen, then ever so slowly increased the CO2 bit by tiny bit. The mouse sniffed around the chamber, exploring, curious. As the CO2 levels increased, it began wobbling side to side on its feet in some strange drunken dance. Its breathing sped up, and at regular intervals, it gave a big hiccup. Eventually, the mouse staggered a few steps, then slumped, eyes open and blank, as it continued hiccuping. Maggie wanted to look away, but she instinctively knew she needed to see this moment and remember it. The mouse didn't have a choice, and neither should she. The time between each hiccup got longer, and then... it stopped altogether. They let it sit there for another five minutes before the head technician ordered Maggie to break its neck to make sure it was dead. Thankfully, it was. Her hands were shaking so much she couldn't break it cleanly on her first try. The whole procedure of gassing the mouse from start to finish took roughly 20 minutes. She began to understand why breaking the neck, something that was instantaneous if you did it right, was more humane. She began practicing on dead mice every day. Maggie got used to the mice pretty quickly. It was the rats that got to her, specifically baby ones. They were blind, pink, covered in a soft, downy peach fuzz, and had adorable little chubby folds of fat. Breaking their necks was out of the question. They needed the spinal cords intact for their work. And so Maggie watched as the head technician put one in the CO2 chamber. It squirmed as its belly touched the cold, sterile surface. As the gas slowly hissed in, Maggie could see the pup snuffling around blindly, trying and failing to get away from the cold. She knew its big forehead, wide-set eyes, and rounded features were evolutionarily designed to tug at every maternal fiber of her being. Knowing this didn't make it any less effective, especially as it began to stretch a little paw out and yawn sleepily, still stumbling forward, hoping to find the safety and warmth of its mother. After 20 minutes, the pup laid cold and still in the middle of the chamber. The head technician had opened the domed lid and placed sharp surgical scissors on either side of its chubby neck, ready to snip the head off. They needed the cells as fresh as possible. But the cold of the steel blade had woken the baby rat who wasn't dead after all, just asleep. Oh yeah, the head technician told Maggie. Newborn rodents can survive for extended periods of time without oxygen. It's some natural survival mechanism. We'll just have to wait longer. But Maggie wasn't listening. She was watching in horror as the rat dozily nuzzled its head against the cold steel blade of the scissors, searching for something, anything that could bring it comfort. The next time, and every time after that, Maggie would put a little screw-cap test tube of warm water in the gas chamber with the rat. It was their little secret. She was scared she'd get in trouble, be told it wasn't part of the protocol, but she did it anyway, taking comfort from the way it seemed to soothe and relax the little blind rat pup. 
letting it nuzzle and doze off against what it thought was its mum as it gradually ran out of oxygen and died. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Two years passed. The pandemic hit. Uncle Jeffrey was on chemo now and shielding. He attended his daughter's wedding on Zoom. He put on his best suit anyway, and he and Colleen watched the ceremony on his iPad. Later, during the reception, Maggie held her cousin Allison's train up for her so it wouldn't drag on the tiles as she sobbed in the bathroom. Deemed an essential worker, Maggie went in day after day to check on the animals. As the other technicians around her quit, why should they put their lives on the line to clean animal shit while other researchers were on Zoom calls in their garden for the same pay? Maggie stayed on and was duly given a promotion. Now a senior technician, it was Maggie's job to watch for signs of sickness in the animals. Swelling, loss of appetite, hunched posture, not grooming themselves, severe weight loss. And decide whether or not the animal should be put down. At the first sign of any suffering, Maggie would pin down their necks with her finger and thumb, then sharply yank the tail up and out with her other hand, and it'd be over in a second flat. The vaccine rollout was well underway, but Maggie watched, helpless with the rest of her family, as Uncle Jeffrey, once a proud six-foot-tall civil engineer and rugby player, seemed to shrink and slowly curl in on himself. His cheeks sank, even while his hands and ankles swelled until the skin was taut and shiny. He stopped being able to sit in the same room as Auntie Colleen for meals. The smell made him nauseous. Maggie thought to herself that if she'd let an animal get to this point, she'd have been fired for inhumane practice and cruelty. Auntie Colleen asked to borrow her new son-in-law's protein shake mixer. The doctor had given them nutritional shakes to keep Uncle Jeffrey's weight up. It was all Uncle Jeffrey could eat now. The smell of artificial bananas would hit Maggie every time they entered the house. When Uncle Jeffrey was unable to come downstairs at all, Maggie's mother began insisting they all visit him daily. Once again, Maggie told herself to not look away. Uncle Jeffrey didn't have a choice, and neither should she. At work, research started in earnest again. Attempting to catch up on time missed during the lockdown, one of the more ambitious PhD students tried to hide their sick animals from Maggie. They just needed the mice to hold on a bit longer. Their thesis! Their data! After Maggie broke the poor animals' necks, she reported the student and got them banned from the animal facility. After that, the PhD student stopped talking whenever she entered a room. But Maggie didn't mind. They'd all graduate and move on to greater things. She was the one who'd have to stay and look after the mice and the next generation of students year after year after year. Uncle Jeffrey refused to entertain the idea of a hospice, insisting he wanted to die in his own home. The sun poured into the tiny bedroom every afternoon, and he refused to let Auntie Colleen open the window. It's cold, he insisted, as everyone's foreheads glistened, holding their mugs of steaming tea, smiling pleasantly, and looking anywhere but at his swollen watermelon-sized abdomen. Maggie left the room when Uncle Jeffrey needed the commode. He didn't want anyone but Auntie Colleen to help him. When he couldn't sit up at all, the nurse had a box of adult diapers delivered to the house. Well, soaring temperatures are still hitting most of Europe. There are wildfires in Portugal and Spain and a warning from the World Meteorological uh, Centre of an increase in pollution as well. In the past hour or so, it was one of the hottest UK summers on record. Ever. 
Grass turned to dust, and people were advised to check the pavement with their hands before taking dogs for a walk. As professors, technicians, and students alike sat panting in their 35-degree offices, they checked on their lab thermometers. Maggie attended the Animal Research Committee meeting, where the head of the animal unit reported they'd serviced the air conditioning system for the mice and rats to keep them comfortable. Someone queried the humidity and was assured this was being closely monitored as well. Maggie had seen the junior technicians dutifully logging the temperature and humidity every hour. They laughed, saying the animals were being treated better than they were. They were only half joking. One day, in his sweltering little room with the blue painted walls and white lace curtains, Uncle Jeffrey lost his ability to speak. His dentures couldn't fit his mouth anymore, and his skin seemed to have shrunk so that his mouth appeared permanently half open. He lay on his side in the heat, wearing nothing but his adult diaper, his lips parted and dry. Sometimes the pain would be too much and he'd moan, not even realizing he was doing it. When that happened, Auntie Colleen would sit beside him in bed and stroke his head. He'd hold her hand and look up at her like a little child. Are we all like that at the end? Maggie wondered. Lost and frightened infants looking for the comfort of our mothers? After her visits, Maggie would head straight home to the liquor cabinet, fully hating herself for using a known carcinogen to cope with watching someone die of cancer. Drought has been declared in many parts of England in the last few hours, following the driest July in the country since 1935. The summer heat wave raged on. Allison's management consultant husband raised the idea of a portable air conditioning unit, and weak as he was, Uncle Jeffrey tried to lift his head in protest, moaning a sound as close as he could get to no. Auntie Colleen soothingly stroked his head. He's scared of the cold, she explained. Allison's husband threw his hands up in a gesture like he was giving up and left the room. No one blamed him. The room was an oven, but Uncle Jeffrey was still his stubborn self, and there was relief in that somehow. The next day, temperatures reached 40 degrees around the country, and Uncle Jeffrey died. Colleen, Allison, and Maggie's mother were there. Maggie's mother called her shortly after, but Maggie missed the call. She was in the lab, watching a baby rat nuzzle a little secret test tube of hot water, warm, secure, and safe as it gently dozed off. It was a good death. Hi, Joanne. Thank you for your story. I'm going to start by asking you about the fact that each of our writers were given the same provocation and we asked you to articulate something that you've never told anyone before. Can you talk about your initial response to that and how you landed on telling this story? I think my initial response to that was complete terror because um, normally I'm a talker, so if I haven't told someone about it, it probably means I'm not ready to process it. So I cheated on the assignment by talking about something that I had talked about, which was animal research. But somehow in writing it, I ended up talking about something I have never told somebody about, which was my experience of watching my father-in-law die of cancer over the summer, probably because I wasn't ready to deal with it. But I found like this was like a free therapy session. It was like, it was really helpful in processing it and kind of making sense of it. In what way? Like, how did you find yourself processing that as you were writing it? I think I just, I couldn't understand what I was 
watching and why someone would be made to feel the way that they did or die that way. And so in writing this and kind of putting it in the context of deaths that I did understand and that were humane, I kind of understood it a bit more. So if anything, I think I was the asshole management consultant um, <laughs> husband in, in the story because I was like, why doesn't he just want an air conditioner? And in writing this, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember now, like the, the baby animals, they hated being cold when they died. Um, and it was really uncomfortable. And actually, I did genuinely sneak in hot water bottles for the animals because um, I just I couldn't bear to watch them die that way. So in thinking about it that way, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, it makes a lot of sense. And actually, it, it was a better death than I thought it was. Did it help putting some distance in between you and the story vis-a-vis this character of Maggie? Yes, in, in terms of like processing the emotions, it kind of helped. But I come from a stand-up background, so I'm really used to writing for myself and, and from my own perspective. And even in a script, you know, you're inhabiting a character. So kind of writing in this prose style was really hard. And I felt I probably wasn't quite as honest, I think, in certain ways, because um, I couldn't tap into that without really putting a lot more of myself into it. And I didn't want to because... I don't know, I think I still felt guilty, like it was my husband's story to tell, and I was kind of borrowing this grief, even though it is my grief. Yeah, and I think it's 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 sometimes funny, isn't it, to talk about grief that we feel like doesn't belong to us and how we articulate those feelings, because it always feels like we're stealing someone else's grief when we have that emotion. I wonder if you felt that as well in writing it. Definitely. I think that's why I wasn't processing it, because I was like, this isn't my grief. It's not my dad. And I was like, I'm fine. It's all good. But actually, I think you'd have to be a monster to see someone like every single day and know somebody and watch them die in front of your eyes and not feel anything. But somehow I think I was just like, nope, I'm the strong one here. So I wasn't processing it at all. And I was in complete denial about how much it impacted me. I'd love to also talk about your background, which is in neuroscience and academic research. You spent 15 years in kind of that field before segueing over to comedy and writing. I'm wondering if you found that that experience influenced your voice and and the way in which you wrote this story, because I I felt like, you know, there were certain clinical ways of describing things and there was a matter of factness to the tone that really worked for this. Did you find that kind of influencing you? Absolutely. I think um, probably doing animal research kind of, I don't know, you kind of think about the steps of what you're doing rather than the emotion behind it. So I think it became my coping mechanism. So I don't know if you'll probably, I don't know, subconsciously in the story when things get too much, I probably reverted to spouting out numbers like 20 minutes or like, you know, figures and facts rather than really processing what was happening, which was kind of a way of not getting too deep in there. So I think it has influenced me especially in this one, because I'm not, I don't know, I couldn't really write humor, which is my other crutch. Um, Because I was like, it's not like, I mean, normally, I think I put a lot of humor into my writing. um, But in this one, I really pulled back because I just didn't feel right about it. So I think I ended up relying a lot more on my science background, my science crutch um, instead. Mm, There are small moments of humor that definitely comes through because with any tragedy or absurdity, I think humor is such a helpful way of like viewing it. The podcast is called Never Told. I want to talk about whether there were any aspects of the story that felt particularly difficult to articulate, that you felt yourself maybe having to revise over and over or really hone to get right. Bizarrely, having said it's my crutch describing the protocols of how things happen, in writing writing down exactly what I used to do to animals, I was like, there's no way this can be made palatable at all. (laughs) Um, So I actually pulled back 
I feel on a lot of those details and just the cold hard facts of what I used to do. And then in terms of the actual death, again, I tried to pull back as much as I could and not impact um, the emotion of it too much. Mostly, again, because I felt like it, it was using something in a in a kind of exploitative way, and I didn't want to do that. I just kind of wanted to talk about perhaps my perspective of it. Um, and it was hard just to tap into the memories because I think I'd kind of suppressed them a bit. And I was like, oh, yeah, this bit was awful. And especially because I couldn't talk to my husband about it because that was his father and that's the person I would normally go to and describe the bits that traumatized me the most. Um, I really kept that to myself the entire time and like, you know, especially the bits, uh, I think I talk in there how he's looking at Auntie Colleen like a little child. I'd never told my husband that I'd watched that. To put that in here, I was like, "Mm, I hope he's okay with it. But it was something I saw and that really touched me, I suppose. It's funny you use the word or the phrase pull back, but I kind of see it as a distillation because in some areas, particularly for me as someone that isn't used to this field or has never spent time in a research lab, I felt like you leaned into the specifics and the visceralities of kind of what that is. Nope, that is the the very, very cold clinical sterile version of of the, oh my gosh, yeah. No, there there were some really terrible, terrible things. What was the experience of reading it aloud like for you? More than anything, the first few times I read this out loud, um, I think I kind of got it out of my system. Um, And then reading it over again and reading it out loud, I was like crying at certain bits. So to kind of not let myself get to that emotional state, but then also give it some emotion because you're reading it uh, was really, really hard to balance. Um, But I think, you know, like somebody who used to kill animals for a living, I just kind of focused on what I was doing and made it through. (laughs) Um, So yeah, focus on the job. (laughs) Good to know that that's what you were thinking about as you were <laughs> recording this yeah. for us. I'm wondering how this story intersects with your broader interests as a writer and the world's milieus, characters that you kind of want to explore moving forward. I didn't set out to consciously like align with what I usually write about, but um, it worked out perfectly. I guess I am interested in really morally grey areas and and the more fucked up something is, the better. So especially if I make somebody, you know, question whether or not their morals were correct at the beginning of a thing as opposed to the end. So in this one, I I hope people kind of start out going like, of course I wouldn't kill an animal. That's terrible. Killing anything is horrible. But by the end, you're kind of like, I really want this person to, or this, this animal or this person to die well, and there's a good way of doing it. And so it's kind of playing with those kind of areas that you wouldn't necessarily think like you just have this gut response to like no killing's wrong but by the end you're like no you can you can do it right if you're cheering to do something absolutely awful by the end i've won (laughs) absolutely i feel like you found the clarity and the murkiness thank you for the story and thank you for sharing it on never told this episode of never told was produced by me nicole davis our executive producer is sarah brocklehurst our production assistant and assistant story editor is amy yeo Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bette Norris. That's our show for today, and we'll be returning next week with a brand new story from Emma Jane Unsworth. Listen to Never Told on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.